welcome to Health Kitchen, the podcast that talks all things health, safety, and performance when it comes to restaurants and the food service industry. I'm Aaron, kinesiologist, former dishwasher, server, bartender, and I will be guiding us through this journey as I connect with industry professionals, health experts, and anyone who has a good story in the food service industry. Hello, 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 and we are back with another episode of the Health Kitchen podcast. Now, today is a little bit different, because today we're going to talk about what happens when you discover that you're not the right fit for an industry. And I have been here myself, personally, actually, multiple times for various reasons, that I noticed that I wasn't a good fit for the industry I was in, even if I was good at doing it. And I found this personally for myself when it comes to stress and variety in a job is usually a good factor for me to not stay in it. But what happens if you find out that you aren't well designed for the skills that are being placed in front of you? And I want to leave this episode with a tone of hope because I don't think all of my episodes do that. And it goes with the idea of transferability of skills from one industry to the other. And I want to give an example that excited me from my day job. So if you don't already know, I go and I help manage wellness programs for corporate clients and... One place I was working, I always get to discover the cool job. And where I was working, there were bakers who have their chef degrees from school who also happen to have a chemistry background. And they're able to combine these skills together into a job where they're using those skills every single day at work to create new recipes using their chemistry background and then using their uh, food service training. So there's lots of ways you can combine jobs together. And I want to make sure that if you're listening to this and you're feeling like there isn't hope for you, like you can't get into another kind of work, that you can totally do that. And there's totally options out there for you to transfer from one place to the next. And Think about that if you feel like you need a career change, because I remind myself of this all the time when I'm looking to get into something new, when I'm looking to change my path a little bit from what I'm doing. You can always take skills from the job you have and apply it in a new place. So keep that in mind if you're thinking about transferring out of the industry. And that goes really well in line with the guests I have on today. We talk about what skills are needed to be able to perform well in the food service industry and how taking those skills and the other skills he had from other work to have the career he has now. So I think there's a lot of value there for a lot of people who are maybe thinking about hopping into a career change. So without further ado, let's get to introducing today's guest.
Today's guest goes by the name of Leo Monsell, and he worked as a cook for about five years in Toronto, and before that, he taught English overseas. And he discovered while he was working in the industry that he wasn't the best fit for it. And we get into detail about why that was and how he took that knowledge and transferred it into a different part of the industry. Currently, he is the manager and tour guide for a culinary adventure company who does food tours all over Toronto. And he has really shown how you can take skills and transfer them somewhere else. So I think this interview has a bunch of value for all sorts of people that are hitting that wall in the industry and maybe they're looking to go somewhere else. So without further ado, let's go listen in. Good, awesome. Um, so yeah, so I am sitting here with Leo and I thought I would give you the chance to introduce yourself and uh, what you do, what you're about, and then we'll go from there. Uh, absolutely. Hi there. My name is Leo Monsell. Uh, I am presently the uh, Toronto City Manager for a company called Culinary Adventure Company uh, that does walking food tours, other exciting uh, culinary events in the city. Uh, but I've done a bit of food writing, a bit of media work, uh, and my background before that uh, was five years uh, working as a professional cook in a few different establishments across the city. Perfect. Um, so. Let's get into your time as a cook first, because that always is very interesting to me. And uh, you said previously about five years you were mm. as, worked as a cook. Yeah. Um, what styles of places did you work at? Or kind of start there, and I'll continue. Yeah, for sure. Um, I sometimes tell people sort of the the thorough line of my cooking career was uh, all things southern. So I started off working at uh, a mid scale diner slash smokehouse. Uh, one of the first people, as far as I know, uh, doing Southern barbecue in any form uh, in Toronto back, you know, a decade ago. Um, then I spent two and a half years working at a uh, mid-scale Italian restaurant, a very popular, uh, successful company uh, in this city. And I worked uh, briefly at a Mexican restaurant as well uh, in the Junction neighborhood. Nice. Um, so were these large places, like are we saying like 100 seat or did it vary from place to place? Um, for sure the biggest was the, uh, the Italian spot and that's about a 200 seat operation okay. and then they would throw on about another 50 when they open up uh, their patio. Um, and the, the first and the third spot were both uh, smaller operations, I mean one is like 12 seats, but they would do, especially when they first opened up, like hundreds of covers because people would get so much takeout and they really were really hot when they first opened up. Um, and then the Mexican uh, restaurant was, uh, you know, a bit, a bit more relaxed than the other two. That was more like a 40 seat operation and comparatively sane compared to <laughs> uh, the volumes of the other spots. But I've worked in a food truck as well and I worked um, concurrently with the first job at a little bar where it was two people in the kitchen and so as well as cooking you were doing prep you were doing dishwashing I mean you're doing everything mm, what is jack-of-all-trades places yeah exactly yeah, yeah they're fun because uh, I always uh, whenever I was in a place that you saw that kind of environment for the chefs um, 
it was always like I was always amazed. I was like, how does that happen? Um, until I was a server and had to do the same thing where I had to make my own drinks and like make all the coffees and all that stuff and be the busser yeah, yeah. And, and be the food runner yeah. yeah and everybody just ends up dishwashing right, right? yeah 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 uh, dishwashing is whoever has a spare three minutes yeah. to jump back there and roll up their sleeves yeah just throw something there get in and go and you know then turn around and do it all again but um how did you get started in the industry uh yeah so i'm definitely one of the people who chose this kind of work uh, oh, wow. it did not choose me absolutely so i was a university graduate um and i went to seoul to teach english to okay. elementary school students right after i graduated and i was there to teach you know make no mistake i was an excellent teacher i definitely went above and beyond but i was certainly there as well um, for the experience of living overseas, for traveling, um, for eating, and being over there solidified for me how much of a foodie I was. And I really became obsessed with food and culture and cooking. Um, and I thought, when I come back, I'm going to make a go of this professionally. Um, so I came, you know, not literally straight off the plane, but within a few weeks, I went to this um, this very popular uh, smokehouse diner in my neighborhood and I had zero kitchen experience whatsoever and I remember it actually that I said on my resume that I was applying for a position as a sous chef knowing nothing <laughs> about restaurant hierarchy at all <laughs> I figured okay the chefs are doing all the cooking they're the powerful guys then I will be the sous chef who is assisting the chefs and uh, yeah, they were quite patient in explaining to me, uh, we don't have a sous chef here. We have line cooks and we have prep cooks and we have the one owner who's also the chef. Um, but basically they started me from a position of zero kitchen experience. Uh, I got to skip the dish pit and go into prep work, but it was a culture shock. I mean, yeah. coming from that kind of white collar world where I had been a teacher, did my best to, you know, dress like Mr. Rogers practically, you know, yellow button up shirts and uh, gray wool sweaters. And then suddenly you're working in a kitchen, meeting these like foul mouthed, crazy people. And, uh, oh God, yeah, you know, coming back, I remember the first weeks just like stretching out on my back and it was a, it was a new kind of soreness. Um, but yeah, that sort of kicked everything off as far as my, my culinary pursuits. Interesting. It's so rare that somebody, uh, well, it's not that rare, but I feel like it's a little bit more rare that someone says like, I want to be part of this industry and I want to learn and I want to get in. Mm. A lot of people mm. kind of end up in it out of necessity. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. just end up then kind of stuck there. Yeah. Not stuck. Stuck's a bad word, but they stick around there. Yes. Um, you know, for better or for worse. And, uh, some people are able to really embrace it or not. Yeah. Like for me, I started as a dishwasher because I needed a job mm -hmm. and then kind of moved to the front of house side because I knew that would be more in line of what I could do because um, I, you know, like to talk and all that kind of stuff. So, and that's kind of, I sticked with it for 15 years because it worked for me in that way. Um, but we all know how tough it is working in kitchens and everything. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything that really challenged you when it came to health and performance while you were... Oh, God. I mean, hard to pick out, um, like, one particular thing. Like I say, it was very physically exhausting, very physically demanding. Um, 
in a way I sort of knew it would be, but again, the, the reality of that in the first couple of weeks was kind of, uh, it leveled me. Um, and it, it, yeah, continued to be quite a physically demanding, physically strenuous job. I would say my biggest um, issue looking back through it, um, one of the big ironies of being a cook is that you are very often not able to eat at a regularly scheduled interval. So especially some of my jobs where I was working day shifts, you come in at 8.30 and you don't eat anything until 3 p.m. And I mean, they tell you, oh, you know, if you're hungry, you need to take a spot, take a break, go ahead and do it. But there simply isn't the time to do it. Um, and I'd say, you know, looking back at it, it's it's very unhealthy yeah. to go that long of a stretch uh, without eating. Like for a while, I had a couple little solutions, like I would wolf down granola bars or something. So I wasn't literally going for a seven hour stretch uh, without eating. But there were more times than not where that's exactly what I did. Yeah. It's like the the old saying like the the cobbler's son goes shoeless. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Here you are surrounded by food, you're cooking food for other people and you don't have 10 minutes to to make sure that you yourself are fed. Yeah. And I, that's not healthy. Yeah, I think people who aren't part of the industry don't know that mm-hmm. or they would assume mm-hmm. that there's food all mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. so you could just have time to eat it. Um, but it is really tough to get a break to eat food or to set that up in a way, Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting to me because there's so many ways you can, um, get around that in some ways that if we thought a little cleverly about it. So thinking like how marathon runners have Mm -hmm. things that they can grab really quick and boost their Mm -hmm. system, um, uh, when they're doing those really long runs and kind of thinking of working in a restaurant in the same sort of way. To be able to support, you know, a bit of nutrition. So we don't see that blood sugar drop. We don't see that, Mm -hmm. you know, that clumsiness start to uh, set in. Yeah. And, um, like, having nothing in your stomach at all and then wolfing down a cheeseburger in 15 minutes. I mean, it's it's exactly what you're not supposed to be doing digestively. Letting your system run all the way to empty and then slamming it with something that is, you know, rich and and difficult to digest. So, yeah, looking back at it, I would have taken better care of myself and said, you know, (laughs) F the prep list. Like, if we need to to get behind on something, I need this 15 minutes now. So, um, that was, I think, one of the biggest physical challenges. Yeah, definitely. That definitely makes sense. And something I've always thought in the back of my head, and I don't think you could ever get like hard data on this, but I always found I was most clumsy at mm-hmm. like when I had my blood sugar the lowest mm-hmm. after working for mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. six or seven hours without food. Yeah. And that's when stuff got broken. So I always wonder, you know, they, they say it's expensive to have like food there that your employees could eat and everything. But I wonder what the cost-benefit analysis compared to the amount of breakage sure. you get when your employees are yeah. burnt out and uh, and uh, extremely hungry. That echoes my experience exactly. Uh, Any time that I have cut myself, I feel like it was pretty much always uh, a Saturday at around three o'clock on one of the days where I'd started at eight in the morning. So exactly that point where you're starting to get exhausted and a little bit frantic as yeah, well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always found the days that I cut myself was with the goddamn bread knife. 
hmm. uh, which is the worst thing to cut yourself with because it's a serrated knife, so it causes it to bleed way more. <sighs> yeah. And then you're way more out of commission than anything else. It was always the the one day is I was I was always be really busy, mm-hmm. and then I'd be cutting bread as fast <coughs> as I could because that's one of the things that front of house staff usually mm-hmm. does. And uh, then I would cut myself with the serrated knife, and then it would just be, you know, a good fifteen minutes trying to stop the bleeding and bandaging it up and everything. And that's when you need people to be at their best, right? Uh, so, did you find there were any sort of successes? Uh, when it came to remedying these sorts of things? Like, I wish I could say that overall the picture got better, but, um, you know, not necessarily. Um, The nature of the work in restaurants is that sometimes you're going to be slammed pretty much across the board. Um, And, you know, in the off-seasons, that's when you have time, that's when you can be a little bit more careful. So, um, yeah, I mean, on the whole, I would say uh, if I was working, you know, March or April, then I could make sure I took time to feed myself at an appropriate hour as opposed to, you know, gunning through for seven hours on an empty stomach. Um, But I wouldn't say there was an overall trajectory towards things getting better. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Interesting. And I think a lot of people would probably say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I find there's a lot of nihilism in the industry that it's sort of, it is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Um, For better or for worse, I think that allows the industry to do some amazing things, Mm. but it also uh, really kills the longevity for a lot of people's careers. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you transferred out of the kitchen into culinary tours. Mm, Um, mm. Is there something that sparked that in you, or you just saw the opportunity and took it? Well, I mean, um, to be honest, I always felt like I was fighting an uphill battle when I was working as a cook. Um, I have a mind that is very writerly. I like to focus on one thing at a time. I like to analyze uh, and I would say I'm a good communicator as well and the number one skill to being an excellent line cook and there's a lot of overlap with bartending is multitasking yep and so you know I came in with this big passion for food and culture and the stories behind a lot of traditional dishes and I met people who could cook me under the table, I mean, no question about it, who didn't give a damn about what they were serving. It could be Italian, it could be Greek, it could be Lebanese or Chinese. It makes absolutely no difference to them. But they have that skill where they can keep track of putting out 12 things that are at different stages of cooking that are all happening in a seven-minute window. And that is a knack. Yeah. Not everyone who even wants to do that can do that. Yeah. Uh, this is another factor when we talk about you know burnout in the industry. Um, not everyone who can do that does really excel. So I really found that after five years of doing this, I was not excelling to such a point where I could say, you know, I got this, nailed this, give me a promotion, I'm ready to move up the ladder. Um, it's like there's a saying, uh, no one's going to make you the general if yeah. you're not a great soldier. Yeah. And perhaps I have the kind of mind where I could have been a good chef, uh, good at you know, 
envisioning an entire menu, imagining what customer demand is going to be, all those kind of skills I think I've got. But I would never make it to that level because I was never at the point where I was such an able chef that I was able to say, I'm ready to be the executive chef at any kind of spot like that. So realizing five years in, I am still more of a foodie and a home cook than I am a skilled restaurant cook. Yeah. And I still, when I was a restaurant cook, I was the only one I knew who was going to the library and getting out books on Lebanese food and Chinese food and Persian stuff and bringing that home. And on my off days, you know, doing like massive meals just to taste those kind of food, right? Most of the cooks that I knew on their day off, it's like feet on the couch and they're ordering a pizza. They're not cutting up another onion. Like they're sitting there smoking weed all afternoon. Um, So I really realized my passion was much more so for the cultural connection with food. So I took a step back. Uh, I did a bit of food writing. I actually had a couple of pieces that were in uh, Vice Media. Nice. And um, it was kind of funny because they're known for like weed and edginess and all that kind of stuff. And the two pieces that I wrote are about uh, newcomers starting in the culinary scene in Toronto and just very, very wholesome kind of pieces. Um, and from that, with a friend of mine, we started doing food tourism independently. Uh, we did that for a season and then through promoting ourselves online and on Instagram and social media, uh, we got onto the radar with an operation called Culinary Adventure Company and uh, that's where I've been for the past uh, three years now. Nice, nice. Um, it's funny, I've worked in a restaurant that had regular culinary tours come mm, to it mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in Guelph. So I kind of know hmm. how that works a little bit and how you yeah. can, you know, the, you know when the group's coming, you're going to have all the menu items ready to go. The manager usually was the one that went out and did all the talking about the menu mm-hmm. and all that good stuff. And the tour guide was really well connected to our restaurant. She would come in all the time. Mm-hmm. So she also knew how to talk about the food as well um, and the history of the restaurant and uh, all that good stuff. So it was uh, it was always easy for us when the tour was coming in. It was really easily managed and it wasn't a big headache um, by any means. But um, can you describe sort of the process of your tours and uh, kind of what you highlight with your uh, restaurant partners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just following up with with what you said right there um, we always say that we want to work with restaurants in a way that works for restaurants Mm -hmm. and I'm really glad to hear you say as you know having somebody who's worked with tour groups from the other side you found it easy and predictable because that's exactly what we aim to be Um, you know we give notice to our restaurant partners they know it's going to be the same food And it's just a question of, is it for two people this week? Is it for eight or is it for 20? Um, So as far as from the the guest side, the consumer side, um, you would go to our website. uh, You would pick a date or you'd pick an area that you want to explore. Um, We do seven different neighborhood tours in Toronto. And uh, it's quite a bit like a neighborhood walking tour, except we are going to feed you and then some. So you're gonna be coming from anywhere from like five to 10 spots. Uh, Some of the spots a little bit smaller bites. 
Uh, some of them certainly more on the substantial side, um, but with, with our company, Culinary Adventure Company, we definitely say you're going to leave with lunch and a half by the time that you're done. So along the way, you're going to pick up a little bit of uh, neighborhood history and city history, uh, but quite a lot of the content is actually going to be focused on the restaurant owners themselves, on the cooks, and on the cultural elements uh, behind the cuisine, which if you are a solo diner, you're not going to have access to. So again, coming back to like the benefits for restaurants that work with food tours, um, you're going to leave as a patron with a closer connection to that restaurant that you just visited than you would if you were just somebody who walked in off the street. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, you don't always get all the uh, bells and whistles, should I say, when you kind of go to a restaurant. Absolutely. Especially if it's a really busy night, you know, mm-hmm. you're kind of getting, mm-hmm. get sad. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's going to be really awesome. Mm-hmm. But you might not get the full history of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the server might not have time to go into the history mm-hmm. of each dish and all that sort of stuff. So the tour really allows that process to happen it makes time for that process Um, 100 percent. and i mean like another just like an example we go to uh king's noodle on our chinatown and kensington market tour you come in there see all this barbecue stuff in the window then they hand you a menu and it's six pages and it's upwards of 400 items and you say i just want the that stuff over there how do i get that right but when you're with the tour the ordering is already taken care of and there's a level of explanation and you know for people who need it frankly like a level of hand-holding if this is not a cuisine that you already have a big in with sometimes it can be a little bit daunting to get authentic whatever it is chinese ethiopian etc yeah um so do you kind of have a process of uh lifting the current a little bit of how that food ends up in the seat yeah absolutely Um, The slogan of the company um, is every bite tells a story and so that plays out in a few different ways. Um, You can have the actual like farm to table story of the ingredients um, but there's also like I say sharing the story of the restaurateurs, um, the chefs, uh, the managers in some case who have been working there. Um, for quite some time and um, the cultural pieces as well Um, why is this dish important what is interesting about this what is distinct about this and what is how this restaurant is doing this dish how is it different from their competitors Mm -hmm. as well so we explore all that it gets into ingredient it gets into technique Uh, And whenever applicable, it gets into the history as well, which can go back, you know, in the cases of some cuisines, centuries. Yeah. So exciting. That's so cool. Uh, I absolutely love that. It makes me want to go on a tour. Um, We'll get you on one. Perfect. Yes. Um, But uh, do you, you kind of mentioned technique and everything, and I'm all about Mm, health and performance. mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you, how do some of those talks connect to the skill behind what's being made? Because I find sometimes people think food just kind of happens yeah they really do and that is one of the the sort of um the joys of getting to do the food tours is giving people just a little bit more of a closer connection uh with the restaurateurs and with the people who are doing things in a very hands-on kind of way 
Um, so when possible, we'll have you know the owner of the shop, the cheesemonger, the fishmonger, uh, whomever, do an actual presentation. And if they're not able, just for logistical reasons, um, then at very least we have the name and the backstory of the person who's behind the business and why they got into it. So people are connecting the labor with the food. And I think what's really important is we don't shy away from how demanding this is. Yeah. Um, you know, in many cases, you know, it's, it's long hours and it's hard work and it's on your feet. Um, and, and we share those stories and create an appreciation for that. Um, you know, going to Rolson and, uh, you have this dumpling that, uh, you eat in two bites and then you get a chance a little later on to watch dumpling prep and realize, yeah, that even in the scan hands of these very skilled artisans, uh, these are items that take longer to make than they yeah. do to eat. Yeah. That's so important. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's one of the most important things that, and I think it's something that I didn't expect from this podcast, but the number of chefs and servers I've had on so far and people who aren't in the industry who are like, mm -hmm. I had no idea, mm -hmm. you know, like how hard the job is, yeah. all this stuff that's happening in the background, yeah. all this stuff that people are thinking mm -hmm. about in the background mm -hmm. and creating appreciation for that, yeah. um, which excites me that I get to do that mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because um, I think a lot of people just expect everything's really easy. Um, I always had in the background when I was a server, you get people who would give these crazy requests. And I'd be like, do you know what has to happen back there for that to come to reality? And you want to be out in the next 20 minutes? Uh, you know, trying to explain them that and some people not being able to appreciate that at all. Yeah. You know, and yeah. just being like, we'll yeah. make it happen. I'm yeah. like, oh, I don't, okay, yeah. we'll try, but you know. With, this is a bit of an aside, um, but with television now and the number of series that are out there on Netflix and things like that, I do often find that people have a greater than ever appreciation of the difficulty of cooking and executing food in a restaurant capacity, but at the same time, they are armed with a lot of misconceptions. So... I tell people I used to be a restaurant cook and um, then they sort of imagine that it was hard because you've got some kind of a Gordon Ramsay figure who's standing on the other side of the pass and staring at it and it has to be absolutely perfect. I only ever worked at mid-scale places, I mean like nice places, you'd go out for a date or an anniversary dinner, but not places where you're plating microgreens with little tweezers or anything like that. Yeah. So sometimes you have to explain to people no it's it's actually not difficult necessarily because the level of perfectionism that's involved but simply because of the workflow yeah imagine one pasta that you could execute perfectly in a seven minute window well that's all well and good but once you're on step three of 20 in this window and then an order comes up to make four more it's just so much that you have to be keeping track of yeah Exactly. People don't know about the volume, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's something to be said. But um, would you say the industry is kind of changing around these sorts of things a little bit? This is interesting because um, I'm starting to follow a little bit about the message that you're getting out and what you're starting to share and talk to people. I have been out of cooking for four years. 
And so this conversation about a shortage of cooks was sort of in its nascency when I was taking a step out. And like I said, just found I was getting burnt out and it wasn't playing to my strengths. So if it gets to a point where the shortage is such that there really is a demand, I think it's going to possibly um, push people to, to do a better job in terms of taking care of their staff, um, in terms of actual care and ergonomic and those kind of concerns, safety concerns, um, but in terms of pay as well. Yeah, I think we're hitting that wall right now mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Um, seeing as when I did my work for Restaurants Canada, they were so excited. They were like, no, let's talk about this. So I was like, and it's, it's the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. across the board every time they surveyed their members it's retention mm-hmm. and that keeps getting becoming a bigger and bigger percent yeah. but we're getting to the point where i'm hearing stories that restaurants can't open mm-hmm. because they yep. don't have the staff to uh do what they need to do um and then the people who are around if you're already a functioning restaurant are getting so burnt out that eventually those people have to step away because they're just that burnt out especially if they find out they can make better money doing easier work right and virtually any job that you're going to get is going to be better pay for the amount of work like when i left and finally threw down the apron um i really did feel like this is the the worst paid job commensurate for the amount of demand that is asked for that is not to say that there aren't harder jobs out there. Yes. Um, you could be, you know, laying tar paper on roofs, but somebody's <laughs> going to pay you properly uh, to do that kind of work. Um, and yeah, when when I left, it was still, you know, people squabbling to get from 14 up to 17. And, you know, having been an ESL teacher before overseas, I never fought that hard for a raise because it all just frankly felt like peanuts i felt like the real value of that job was about 30 dollars an hour yeah you know somewhere between 20 and 45 and obviously we know that's not (laughs) what people are making particularly not in restaurants right uh i haven't seen it get there uh yet there are i've heard well there are some places that are starting to raise wages to something that sounds kind of slightly okay um, living in Toronto, I just still don't know how you pay your rent. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's an interesting thing. I don't know why it has been allowed to last as long as it has. I think as an industry, it's interesting to me because I don't know how you could not see the writing on the wall that this would eventually hit you. But maybe it was just something that everybody pushed away until we're at this point where no one can. Uh, find people anymore right well i mean i used to say that um cooking is kind of like being the captain you know being a chef is like being the captain of a pirate ship and you only get two kinds of cooks uh, the crazy and the desperate and uh, i thought this was my own little spiel and then i read it in <laughs> anthony bourdain's first book uh, that was written 15 years before i got into the industry so i thought wow that's kind of incredible but yeah, that was exactly my experience, that you had uh, people who had, uh, you know, a limited amount of English and felt like they didn't have a lot of other possibilities, um, who got quite good at it um, over the years and would stick in the industry. 
And then you had people like myself who thought, okay, maybe after three, five years, I'm going to go and open up my own place. Um, and in my case, you know, end up doing a total 180 from that whole direction. But um, yeah, the, the, the driven and the desperate. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, driven and the desperate. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to leave a pause at that for mm. this moment because uh, we've had an excellent amount of time for this conversation. And uh, we're going to take a little break and we're going to come back and talk about some crazy restaurant stories because I'm sure you have some, right? Hey, listeners, I need a little bit of your help. If you like this podcast, I want you to go and rate and review and subscribe to it wherever you find your podcasts, uh, Spotify, iTunes, whatever it may be. Particularly on iTunes, if you give me a review along with rating it, it really helps other people find this podcast. And I really want this podcast to go wide and far because we have... 2 million people in the food service industry in Canada, and we affect 22 million people per day. So I want lots of people to hear this, and I want this podcast to go wide and far. And what's even better than rate reviewing and subscribing it is that if you like an episode, share it around. Make an Instagram post. It's really easy. Especially if you use Spotify, you can just go and share it really straight to your Instagram feed. Share it on Facebook. Send it to a friend. Whatever you want to do to help this podcast get around. Because I love this podcast and I want more people to hear it. So go do that for me. And if you want to be on this show, you can always send me an email at aaron at balancelifeservices.ca. Now, without further ado, let's get back to those crazy restaurant stories. So we're back. And we're going to get into some crazy restaurant stories, which are, there's so many. And I haven't heard one repeated twice yet, really, um, from my guests so far, which is so cool because I thought I might hear a lot of similar stories, but uh-huh. they never end and they're always great. Um, but one story that kind of poked out to me was uh, one time we had a uh, toilet kind of explode in a restaurant once. Um, and usually you just like close the bathroom and it's fine. Um, but this time this bathroom was on the second floor. Um, so it ended up draining it. Like you'd think it'd be fine within the actual room, but it actually somehow like found a hole through the floor and drained into the first floor of the restaurant. Um, so we ended up having to like shut a section of the restaurant down to clean it up and everything. And it was just this big nightmare and it was like, yeah, it was the absolute worst thing, like toilet water coming through. Um, like that kind of a disaster, right? Um, and that's something that like, you know, you never know what's gonna happen in a restaurant, so and sometimes the toilet explodes and then you have to deal with that. So oh, I'm yeah. gonna put that as my story for this week. But Aish. Um yeah, I often like to say uh, that there's no such thing as the restaurant industry. There is only the equipment repair industry. (laughs) Uh, I remember my first job, like you could just count on it like clockwork that if we got a busy Saturday in the middle of August and hey, we're making money, making up for that slow midweek sales, 
the hood fan goes out or yep. the flat top goes out. Um, so yeah, if you want to be a restaurant owner, prospective restaurant owners out there in the world, um, make sure you are <laughs> a plumber, an electrician, uh, a handyman, and every single thing like that. But yeah, when I was working um, at a large uh, Italian restaurant, um, we were situated in this beautiful old turn of the century building, but that came with its own challenges. And one day, one of the sinks that was right beside one of the grills, right on the line kitchen, uh, completely busted and started to drip. And slowly this problem was getting worse and worse and we start mopping it up and you know asking the dishwasher to come back here and please bring another mop, bring another bucket. Um, it got to the point where we're working in a centimeter of water and then an inch of water. And I don't remember where the chef was that night, but we're telling the general manager, hey, we're working in an inch and a half of water. Can you close the kitchen down back here? And he's like, well, food's looking good. Keep going, guys. <laughs> you can do it. So, yeah, those little rubber safety mats are submerged under, like, two inches of water. The, the poor grill cook right in the middle had it worse because of the way the whole thing formed sort of a basin down there and you can just hear her going slosh slosh like literally like splashing with each step uh made it through to the end of service and i think she just uh walked off without closing her station after that but uh yeah that's probably one of the worst instances of uh just buckle up guys right, that yeah. i've ever seen yeah see how it goes uh i remember uh one time a fridge broke Mm. Um, which is the worst ever because then everything has to be moved to the other fridges um, in this yeah. place, yeah. which meant that the chefs had to run a flight of stairs to go get stuff consistently. Yeah. Um, and I imagining that in the middle of service um, was the worst. Um, and we were too on the service side because we had stuff that was in those fridges as well. So we would have to like run all the way down to the basement to the fridge down there and then run all the way back up um, to go get something that was usually like within arm's reach. So really great way to uh, slow everything down by about an extra 10 minutes on the line um, you know yeah. so that was always entertaining and uh, I will say though that when that happened um, it kind of gave the chefs a little bit of appreciation of how much running the front of house team was doing mm. um, because it was a very long restaurant yeah. and it was about like a good 20 second walk to the kitchen Right. So you never really got like a good eye on everything. Like some restaurants where you can just look and there's a line and you can always keep yeah. an eye on it. So you always had to run really far. Um, so I think the chefs after that appreciate how far we had to run all the time um, to make that happen. Oh, at that same place where I worked, um, the the prep kitchen was up on the second floor. <laughs> Oh, amazing. And then there was storage down in the basement. So, yeah, my God, you got your steps in. Uh, you got your flights of stairs in working that job. And one of the first things you'd have to do sometimes was uh, run upstairs with about 40 pounds of pasta. And I would just console myself by telling uh, myself that people were paying for their gym memberships to do exactly what I was doing <laughs> right now. And I was getting paid to do it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, demanding. Exactly. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, I think I think this has been a really fun conversation. Uh, you have a lot of insight in the industry, which is really great. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Leo. 
Oh, I mean, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm still doing my best to, um, you know, connect the stories between food and culture and the cultures that uh, produce them. So, um, yeah, very excited for this year to come. Excellent. And uh, we'll go from there. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Hell's Kitchen podcast. Now, if you want to contact me, my email is aaron at balancelifeservices.ca. My Twitter is b underscore life underscore services. My Instagram is balanced underscore life underscore services. And don't forget to go join that Facebook group, Hell's Kitchen, where you can connect with all sorts of working food service professionals to find out what works for them what isn't working for them, and find some people who maybe know how to help you have a better workday. And remember, if you want to be a guest on this podcast, send me an email. I'd love to chat with you. See ya!